So each one of us is, has been, I should say rather, been given a name or a title, right? Whether it's your personal name, which you received at birth, or maybe it's a title that you were given at work. Undoubted that all of you have a name, right? But at least a title in some capacity. And with these names or these titles come implications and, and responsibilities, right? If you have been given the title of a police officer, you have duties to protect, to serve, as they say. Or if you've been given the title of president, you have uh, responsibilities to act as the president. And in Scripture, m- names meant something and, and were typically given later in life. It's interesting now we always have a name picked out, right? Typically, it doesn't have a whole lot of implication to it. But in Scripture, it was more often that they would wait. They would kind of see how the child was going to act. They would see uh, what kind of characteristics would come out. And then they would name the child based on those things. Jesus had many names, right? Joshua, Savior, Messiah, Son of Man, Son of God, the Christ. All these other names. And they all drew out different implications, right? They all had different meanings and purposes and were used at specific times. We even, if you've been in this class, you've heard when we talked about the term Yahweh, what that meant. It was used for specific reasons. And the Christian has many names as well, right? Corporately, we may be called the Bride of Christ, the Church, Saints. Or individually, we may be called the Brethren, Brothers, Beloved, Fellow Workers, Laborers, Slaves, Servants, Prisoners, Fellow Soldiers, Stewards, etc., etc. Right? All drawing out different implications, different Um, ideas of what does that mean if I'm called a brother? What kind of responsibilities come with that? If I'm called a laborer, what kind of responsibilities come with that title? Well, this morning I want us to look at a very specific title in 1 Peter 2.9. In 1 Peter 2.9, in this specific title that we see here, which is an amazing title really, And it says this, but you, you church, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And what I want us to focus on is this term, royal priesthood, this specific term, the specific title. And what does that mean? If you're like me, when I read these things, I start to the wheels start turning and I start questioning, what does that mean? How, how, does that, uh, how do those implications need to change my thought process and how do I respond to that? Have you, ever guys, have you guys ever thought about that? Have you ever questioned what does it mean to be part of this royal priesthood? This is certainly a heavy term, right? Absolutely. And I think what we need to do is really draw out these implications by looking at what it meant in the Old Testament. And so today, we're going to really draw out this royal priesthood idea, and I want us to do that through through Leviticus 8. So if you have your Bibles, flip to Leviticus 8, and we're going to spend our time there today drawing out what this means. Now, there's a lot here, so we're going to have to fly through this. But I think the point is this, as members of the New Testament holy priesthood, we too have access to the Father through His calling and ordaining and are to make spiritual sacrifices pleasing to the Lord. 
And with that truth in mind, we need to understand what does it mean to be a royal priest? How do we become a royal priest? How are we brought into this fold and added to this specific title, this specific group? And in Leviticus 8 this morning, we're going to see six steps of the ordination process, six steps that Moses clearly lays out for us that I think will give us clarity and understanding of what this royal priesthood looks like. What does it mean that as the New Testament believers, we are part of this royal priesthood, this holy priesthood? The first thing that we're going to see, verses 1 through 5, is a declaration. We're going to see a declaration Verses 1 through 5, the Lord tells Moses to prepare for a public decoration. And let's just read through this. I'm not going to read through the whole thing at first because there's so much here. We'll read through the sections as we study them. But follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 5. It says this, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting, And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. This first section sets up what we'll call this ordination process, this ceremony of ordaining these men, Aaron and his sons, to be the first of this royal priesthood, the first of this royal priesthood line, if you will. And I want us to notice first that it's, that it's commanded by the Lord to gather the people. Not just the people, but the materials, right? That's what he says. Take Aaron and his sons and the garments and the anointing oil, everything that's part of this, and assemble all of the congregation at the tent of meeting. He's calling the people here to be witnesses of this service and ordination. He's saying, gather the people so that they can see this great ceremony. I want them to be witnesses and see what is going on here. And it's God himself that's doing this. Of course, he's using Moses as the mouthpiece. But it is God who's saying, do this. And Moses is saying, in obedience, I will do it. You'll see each one of these breaks ends with, as the Lord commanded. Moses wanted to make sure that it's clear that it wasn't him who was ordaining these things or making these commandments, but it was God himself. It says here, as the Lord had commanded to be done, right? In other words, the Lord was the one who wanted the people to know who was being given authority, who was being given this great task to start making sacrifices to make atonement for the people. Think about that. That is one major implication. Imagine if you had been given the task to make atonement for the sins of every other person. This is a heavy task. And God is saying, I want everybody to know that you have been given this specific authority. It's a public declaration and identification that direct access has been given to these men, to this royal priesthood. So not only did he want it to be a public declaration, but look at where he wanted to do it. He says, gather them, the congregation, at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This tent of meeting was uh, the sanctuary of holiness. It later would become what was known as the tabernacle, right? A sanctuary of holiness, the place where sacrifices would be made on behalf of the people of Israel. And this location highlights the importance and ties priests with the tent. This is now going to be a direct tie with the priest and this location. So it's not just a location, it's not just priests, but they're now going to be tied together, right? 
this future tabernacle. And I think if we flip over to Exodus 29, this will help give us a little bit of clarity. If you flip back just one book, Exodus 29... In verses 42 through 46, expound on this. Exodus 29, 42 through 46, it says, It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve as my priests, to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. In verse 46. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. So think about that. It's not just a a declaration of these are my royal priests. This is my royal area. This is the tent of meeting set specifically for this task. But it was to declare that he was God. He wanted these new priests, this new priest line to be mouthpieces for him and to be an illustration that it was God who had been setting this up. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. All the people would know explicitly who would make atonement for their sins and where it would happen. But again, most importantly, we need to see that it was God who orchestrated it, who did this work, who ordained it. And it's an interesting transition here because we see up until this point, Moses had been the mouthpiece, right? He had been the one that was going between God and the people and expressing things, giving the Lord's commandments. But now direct access to God was expanding to Aaron and his sons. And this has great implications for us as the body, as those who have been now added into this fold through the blood of Christ, we now have direct access to God the Father, right? We see that the curtain was torn in two, the veil was torn down. So this... Moses, or this uh, access started with Moses and expanded to Aaron, and now we have this direct access as priests. So our commitment, your commitment to the Lord, should be made public as new church members, right? New Testament members of the body of Christ. Think about baptism, right? I think this is a great way that we do this now, is that we declare our Um, access to God, we declare our identification with Christ, our identification with the body through the act of baptism, right? We all take part of this. It's a wonderful time when we go and we glorify God, when we see that somebody is sharing their testimony of what the Lord has done for them. And so in the same way that God was telling Moses to make this a public declaration, we too make a public declaration when we are added into the fold of God, right? So first we see this public declaration, and now let's move on to the second point, which is that Moses washes and dresses Aaron with the holy garments for preparation. So first we see declaration, and now we see preparation in this, these steps of ordination for the holy priests. Verse 6 through 9 says this, And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. 
And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him, uh, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breast piece on him and in the breast, uh, breast piece he put in the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head and on the turban in front he set the gold plate, the holy crown as the Lord commanded Moses. So this first official portion of the process of ordination begins with washing, this term washing. It says, And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. The Hebrew term here is a general term for washing, just simply cleansing, right? But I think it's more than just an outward cleansing here. I think that it's an illustration, if you will, of uh, a, an internal or a spiritual cleansing, a setting apart for this holy or sanctified role for these priests. It's the making the unclean to be clean, right? To be holy. A ceremonial act of cleansing from defilement. Again, think about what we do as an act of baptism. We are fully immersed in the water, right? To cleanse ourselves in an act of obedience. Of course, this doesn't itself save you, but it is an act that illustrates it. And I think in the same way here is what we're seeing is that this act of washing the priest was meant to show that they had been cleansed. They had been set apart. They had been set for preparation for service. Represents restoration and purity. And I think there's great implication in Ezekiel 36. Flip over there if you have your Bibles. Ezekiel 36. the book right before Daniel. Ezekiel 36. Verses 23 through 27 say this. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is extremely helpful here that we understand this, that in the disobedience, the perpetual disobedience of Israel, Over and over in their disobedience, the Lord finally had to say, I'm going to act. I'm going to put a new heart in you. I'm going to cleanse you once and for all. No more of these outward washings. No more of these outward acts. But I'm going to cleanse you on the inside. I'm going to cleanse you in your heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. I will sprinkle you clean with water. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. From all your idols, I will cleanse you. 
And in their disobedience, not only up until this point, but even when Christ came to enact this promise, to enact this covenant that was promised to the nation of Israel, they rejected him. And as such, Romans 11, we have been added into this fold as the church. We have been given this access and this privilege to receive this forgiveness, this cleansing in our heart, right? Think about that. As the church, we are now associated with this effect, with this promise to have a new heart, a cleansed heart. And not only a new heart, but a new spirit to be put within us. This actual full cleansing, this official cleansing, this spiritual or divine cleansing, right? Far more significant than just this outward washing. And this must be the first step in preparation for ministry and service. You must have a clean heart. You must have a new heart, a cleansed heart, a new spirit. 1 John 1.7 says this, But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So this ordination begins with washing this outward effect that showed that they had been prepared, that they were being prepared, Aaron and his sons, for service. But next we see that the ordination continues with clothing. With clothing. Flip back over to our Leviticus 8, where we're at. Verses 7 through 9 Highlight this, it says, and he put, on the, put, and he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band on the, of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him and, on the, and in the breastpiece he put the urim and th- thummim. And he set the turban on his head and the, on the turban in the front he set the gold plate, the holy crown, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Uh, Moses. So it continues with this clothing, these new garments, these garments for glory and for beauty, as Exodus 28.2 says. And take note that they're distinct, they're special. You can clearly see this in all of Exodus 28. But they were garments for symbols of representation. They were purposeful. The ephod, ornamented vest that the high priest wore over a blue robe. It was made of dyed material and fine linen. The garment was embroidered in blue, purple, scarlet, and gold. Attached to it were shoulder straps, each of them having an onyx stone inscribed with the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. The breastplate, also containing the tribal names, was bound to the ephod by an elaborate series of cords and chains. On it were the Urim and Thummim. The Urim and Thummim, as a side note, were... It's hard to find out specifically what they were. We have a few places that give us a little bit of clarity. They, I guess in general, could be described as devices that were used to discern the will of God. You can look at Exodus 28, Numbers 27, a a few other places. But in 1 Samuel 28, 6, it says, When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So, to the best of our knowledge, they were... Devices used to discern the will. Maybe something perhaps like the casting of lots idea. But again, you can look at Exodus 28 and see the great detail, the fine detail, the intricate detail of these garments that were to be given to these holy priests. 
I mean, very fine detail. But I think if we look in first, or excuse me, in uh, Exodus 28, 36 through 38, we see the main point. Flip over to Exodus 28 real quick, and I think that this highlights the main point. Again, these details that went into these holy garments that were made specifically for the priests to make them stand out so that they knew who was a priest. But in verses 36 through 38, it highlights the purpose of these garments. It says this, You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it, like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord, set apart to the Lord, sanctified to the Lord. And you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue. It shall be on the front of the turban. Verse 38. It shall be on Aaron's forehead, and Aaron shall bear any guilt from the holy things that the people of Israel consecrate as their holy gifts. It shall regularly be on his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. As one commentator said, wearing these clothes impressed upon the priests the awesome task that they had and reminded the people of the high office they held. This was especially true of the clothing of the high priest, for each part was either useful or symbolic for some specific task. There was not one thing that was added into these holy garments that did not have a purpose. Very intricate detail. Read chapter 28 sometime and just see the the degree of detail that goes into it. And in the same way, beloved, the church has been made holy and set apart, cleansed, washed, dressed with the righteousness of Christ in the Spirit, right? We no longer have priestly garments, of course, but we've been robed with the righteousness of Christ. We've been clothed with the Spirit. And these are necessary to be ready and prepared to carry out these priestly duties. And the idea of preparation for the proper service to the Lord, we must, be having, uh, we must have been forgiven of sins, washed like the priests. John 13, 8, this famous account of the upper room, right? Peter said to him, speaking to Jesus, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. We must be washed. We must be cleansed so that we can have direct access to Christ and to the Father, right? Romans 13 says that we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. So not only in this account in Leviticus 8 do we see first declaration, this public declaration of this act that's going on, this ordination of a priest, or in verses 6 through 9, the preparation, the preparing these people for the are these uh, men for the role of priestly duties. But next, in verses 10 through 13, we see consecration. Moses anoints Aaron with oil and dresses his sons with the holy garments and anoints them with oil for consecration. Follow along with me in verses 10 through 13. It says this, Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils in the basin and its stand to consecrate them. 
And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waists and bound caps on them as the Lord had commanded Moses. So the next step of this consecration, this ordination ceremony, is the consecration of the priests. But not only the priests, but the tabernacle and everything in it, right? This Hebrew term, kadosh, means to be set apart. Literally taken from one position and placed into another position. But the question is, and again, as I told you earlier, I always ask why. What, what is the purpose of this? Well, why with oil? Have you ever thought about that? What does it mean that they were anointed with oil? What is the purpose of this? There are still people who practice this uh, commandment, or I guess this practice, who still use oil. I actually just talked to a guy the other day who said, yeah, we've been doing this lately in our church. We've been anointing people with oil. And so it really got my wheels turning. So I did some research. It's a custom to anoint a guest with oil in this time. Typically with harsh conditions and elements, right? Heat, sand. Oil helps protect. It helps soothe. It helps protect the, the skin. But over time, because it was an expensive thing, it evolved into a custom of being used by kings and priests only. You can see this illustrated in 1 Samuel, Isaiah. But I want us to make a special note here. I want us to see a connection. And this connection is between the Spirit and anointing. If you have your Bibles, flip to 1 Samuel 10. Very briefly, 1 Samuel 10. And I want us to notice this connection. First Samuel 10.6 says this. I'll start in verse 1 real quick. It says this, Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head, talking about Saul, and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be a sign uh, to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Jump down to verse 6. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Flip over to chapter 16. Chapter 16 of the same book. Verses 13 through 14 say this. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, that's David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went away to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. You see, the connection here is when we see this anointing, when we see David and Saul anointed, we see that the Spirit is directly tied with this anointing. And even more so, when David was anointed, the Spirit left Saul and came upon David, right? The idea here is that the oil is a representation of a special calling and enablement of the Spirit. When anointed with oil, it is 
the indication, uh, the indication was that this person, whoever it was, had been set apart for the service of the Lord and was to be treated with exaltation and affection. This is a, an amazing connection that we see here. This direct tie of anointing with oil and the Spirit rushing upon for the purpose of setting apart, consecrating, making one useful for service, making one useful for ministry. If you read through Samuel, you'll see what the Lord did as He used Saul. And even more so with David when he was anointed, right? He used him. But it's not only here this idea of consecrating with oil the person, but also the tabernacle and all that was in it. Flip back over to where we were in Leviticus 8. says in verse 11, and he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all the utensils in the basin and its stand to consecrate them. So not only was Aaron, not only were his sons consecrated with this act of oil of anointing, right? But so was the tabernacle and everything in it. The point is this, this house, this tent of meeting, this future tabernacle for where the priest would come to have access to the father was to be holy and set apart too. This place was also to be sanctified, consecrated. And whether it's a person, whether it's a place, whether it's a utensil, this consecration, this set apart, this um, sanctifying is all for the purpose of service to the Lord. Everything involved in these sacrifices that were to happen, all these offerings that were to be made, must be made with clean and consecrated utensils on a clean and consecrated altar by clean and consecrated priests. This is the degree of holiness that the Lord commands, right? Set apart for the service of the Lord. Nothing that would defile or taint the opportunity to serve the Lord. If you flip over to Leviticus 10, you don't need to do it, but you can read through the account here. Undoubtedly, many of you are familiar with this. But in verse 1 it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which, had, which he had not commanded them. In verse 2, And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. We don't have time to go into specifically how they defiled it. There's a few different views, but the point is the same, that they went into this tabernacle, they went into this tent of meeting, not in a holy way, not in a prepared way, and the result is clear. The Lord killed them. And this is the degree that the Lord says you must be holy if you're going to offer sacrifices, offer burnt offerings on behalf of the people. And when you do it in an unclean manner, in an unconsecrated manner, You are unfit for service. You are unready for service. And the result is death. And in the same way, beloved, for us, we too must be consecrated by the Spirit, through the Spirit, and we must be divinely enabled for service. Divinely enabled for service. Flip over to 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12.
verses 1 through 11, and says this, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but, in the, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit. To another gifts of healing by the, same, by the one Spirit. To another the working of miracles. To another prophecy. To another the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as He wills. So just as Aaron and his sons were consecrated, they were anointed with this oil as priests set apart, we too as New Testament believers have been consecrated, set apart through the Spirit, right? And through this divine enablement, we are now prepared to make spiritual sacrifices holy and pleasing to the Lord, Romans 12.1. So not only do we see this preparation, or excuse me, this declaration, this preparation, this consecration, but now we see number four, sanctification. Verses 14 through 21. Verses 14 through 21. Then he brought the bowl of the sin offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the bowl of the sin offering. And he killed it, and Moses took the blood, and with his finger put it on the horns of the altar around it, and purified the altar, and poured out the blood at the base of the altar, and consecrated it to make atonement for it. And he took all of the fat that was on the entrails, and the long lobe of the liver, and the two kidneys with their fat, and Moses burned them on the altar. But the bowl and its skin and its flesh and its dung, he burned, up outside, uh, he burned up with fire outside the camp, as the Lord had commanded Moses. Then he presented the ram of the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it, and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. He cut the ram into pieces, and Moses burned the head and the pieces with the fat. He washed the entrails and legs with water, and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering for the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. So we see in verses 14 through 21, Moses offers sacrifices to the Lord for the sanctification of Aaron and his sons. And the first portion of this um, offering is the offering of a bull as a sin offering. Preparation, declaration, and consecration were certainly portions of this ordination process, the ceremony, but did not make atonement for the sins of Aaron and his sons, right? Aaron and his sons needed to be sanctified to be fit for the priestly role. Even this washing with water was an outward appearance. It was an outward illustration. It didn't do anything on the inside. It needed to still be Aaron and his sons cleansed from their defilement, made prepared for this holy and exalted duty. 
You can look through the first seven chapters of Leviticus to learn all about the different sacrifices and offerings. But the sin offering was a specific one. It was for unintentional acts of sin. You can look in Leviticus 4. You don't need to go there, but you can look at it there. So this act was for purification of the priest, not just known sin, but any sin in general. In Leviticus 4.3, you see that this sin offering that was uh, for, uh, through a bull, this specific sin offering, in Leviticus 4.3, was for priests. You can see the details there. In Leviticus 4.13, you can see this sin offering and how it relates to the whole congregation when they sin unintentionally. In 4.22, you can see the sin offering and how it affects the leaders of the Israelites. In 4.27, you can also see the sin offering and its effects for the common people, as it says. But all of this, all of this sin offering, whether it's for the priest, the whole congregation, the leaders, or the common people, had this result in mind. Verse 35. And the priest shall make atonement for him through this sin offering for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. To be fit for priestly duty, there must first be the forgiveness of iniquity, this forgiveness of sin, this atonement paid and accepted by God. And note this, look at what they say here, that they brought it to him and that they laid the hands on the bull. Aaron and his sons. This is significant. This is something we cannot miss. The offerer, whoever it was, whether it was the priest, the congregation, the leaders of the common people, the offerer identified the priest with the animal and transferred to it the guilt of his own sins and imperfections. The animal thereby became accursed and its death paid the penalty due to the sins laid upon it and set free those who had committed them. Similarly, Christ, our sin offering, was made a curse for us. Galatians 3.13 And in our own way and in our own sin, all of our hands were laid upon Him when He was on the cross. We're all guilty. We all bear the shame and the weight of our iniquity. And what a wonderful gift that His sacrifice pays for our sins, our iniquities. And it's specifically the blood here, right? The blood in which the Lord uses to bring about this cleansing. That's why it's sprinkled on the altar here in these verses. In order that it too may be sanctified. Not only Aaron and his sons, but the altar as well needed to be purified. We see here as well the offering of the ram. So we move from the offering of the bull as a sin offering to the offering of the ram as a burnt offering. And as the bull was for purification, the ram was for reconciliation. Leviticus 1, 1 through 3 says this, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any, of you, when any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And here it is, that he may be accepted before the Lord. 
You see, with this offering of the bull offering, there's purification, there's atonement, there's forgiveness of sins. And with this ram, there's acceptance, there's um, reconciliation. Reconciliation, restoration, appeasement, all by the sacrifices of these animals, right? They were necessary for the priesthood. The point is this. As those who were to represent God in ministry and service... They needed to experience full atonement. Forgiveness of sins, yes, absolutely. But also acceptance from God. Making it possible to enter the sanctuary at peace with God. Again, seeing the result of not doing that properly with Nadab and Abihu, right? They were killed by doing this improperly. And for you, believer, for you, beloved, the same is true. This sanctification, this setting apart, right? You must be atoned for. Salvation, yes, but more than that, one who has been released from bondage of sin, who is no longer a slave to unrighteousness, but one who is now a slave to righteousness. Flip to Romans 6 to draw out this implication for us as New Testament believers. Romans 6. Verses 5 through 14 say this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, this sacrificial death, this once for all death, right? If we have been united with him in a death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this, uh, like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you, beloved, you brothers and sisters, you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. What sweet words. Whereas these sacrifices, these offerings had to be made perpetually over and over and over and over and over. We can read here. Verse 10, for the death he died, for the death that Christ died, this sacrifice he died to die to sin once for all is now our privilege. We have now been added into this fold. He is our great high priest, right? So we must be atoned for. We must be sanctified, set apart by the blood of Christ now. Given salvation and set free from the bondage of sin so that we can serve the body, serve our God. Next we see in the process the 
sign of ordination, this almost, if you will, official beginning of, not beginning, but this official term for ordination, verses 22 through 30. Verses 22 through 30 say this in Leviticus 8. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the, uh, and all the fat that was on the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat in the right thigh. And out of the basket of the unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all of these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took from their hands and burned them on the altar with the burnt offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma of food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram ordination as the Lord commanded Moses. So in verses 22 through 30, we see Moses sprinkles the oil and the blood on Aaron and his sons as a sign of ordination. So we've seen the first bull sacrificed, right? This bull of sin offering. We see this ram offered as well for atonement and for uh, acceptance. But now we see a, a third animal sacrifice, a third ram, specifically for the ordination of Aaron and his sons. The Hebrew term here for ordination is male. It's got the idea of being filled or, or to be full. And in this setting, in this use, it's for the filling or the installment, if you will. It's the filling of this role, this priestly duty. We might say that this is the official installation portion of the process of this ceremony of installing the priests. And this offering of the third ram was specifically for the priestly office with special commandments. And I want us to notice three things here. First, in verses 23 through 24, we see where the blood of this ram is placed. First, we see that he takes this blood and he puts it on the right ear of the the lobe of the right ear, right? That sounds kind of strange. Then we see that he puts it on the right thumb. And then we see it's on his big toe on his right foot. And you're probably thinking, what in the world is that about? The right ear, the lobe, the right thumb of the right hand and the right big toe, specifically the right big toe. Well, think about this. This blood, right, was meant to cleanse. It was meant to act as a sanctification process. And so when it was put on the right ear, I think the idea here was to cover with the blood what they were to be hearing. Or the right thumb. To cover with the blood what they would touch, what they would handle. Or with the right toe. This blood that would cover their foot or cover where they walked. With this blood covering what they heard, what they handled, and where they went, wherever they walked, right? It brings the idea that they were to be sanctified in all areas of their life. Not just in what they heard, or what they said, or what they touched. 
or where they went, but in every area of their life, they were to be sanctified, set apart, cleansed. And this blood was meant to cover that, act as a symbol of this act. As one commentator wrote, they were never off duty. (laughs) They were always on call. Always called to live in holiness. Always called to live in total sanctification. So first we see the, the special commandment of where the blood is placed. Next we see the, that, the, um, that he places, that's Moses, places the bread, the oil, the wafer, the fat, and the right thigh of the ram in the uh, hands to be waved as a wave offering. And this is a distinct part in what uh, was to happen as far as a wave offering. A wave offering was part of a peace offering, so that's not distinct. But what's distinct here is that when he handed him all these things, typically it was just the thigh or the fat that was to be waved as a wave offering when given a peace offering. You can see that in the earlier chapters of Leviticus. But we see here that Moses gives them the bread, the oil, the wafer, the fat, and the right thigh to wave as a wave offering. The idea here is that their hands were full. They were complete. They had been given everything to wave to the Lord. It's likely signaling a complete filling of the sacrifices, a totality of the sacrifices. Not just one portion, but all portions. And third, verse 30, another distinct portion of this ordination process, this um, process that brought them as priestly, uh, the priestly office, into the priestly office, excuse me is that Moses sprinkles the blood and the oil on them. Both the oil and the blood confirm the totality of the holy life, right? The blood perhaps illustrating the secular, and the oil perhaps illustrating the sacred. Both sprinkled on the priest as a sign of separation for this special office, that they are to be holy in every area of their life. They are to be set apart more so than anybody else. Not just in a secular sense, not just in a divine sense, but both. Again, remember, these are the people who are to be bringing sacrifices, pleasing to the Lord, in order to atone for the entire nation of Israel. There are great implications in this. Holiness was an absolute commandment of the Lord, and not in just certain areas, but in totality. And in the same way for us, As one commentator puts it, those who serve the Lord must be fully set apart to Him. The doctrine of sanctification must be at work in the spiritual lives, in our spiritual lives, in your spiritual lives. They are to be there to have consecrated ears to hear the voice of the Lord, consecrated hands to do His will, and consecrated feet to walk in His ways. We are not to be like the world. We are to shed ourselves of our former lives, right? And walk in newness of life. You can see this in many passages throughout Scripture. So we've seen declaration, preparation, consecration, sanctification, ordination in this process, these steps of ordaining, uh, ordaining excuse me, the priests. And finally, in verses 31 through 36, we see inauguration. Inauguration. Verses 31 through 36 say this, And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it in the bread that is in the basket of ordination offerings, 
as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days until the days of your ordination are completed, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been done today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. We won't spend a lot of time here. But the idea is this. The ceremony was to be completed and fulfilled for seven days, right? As an act of installation, of inauguration. If you look into this number seven, it's used in uh, every case as far as a completion. It's uh, the idea of totality. They were to be there for seven days. And the repetition of these sacrifices signaled a transition from their old life to a new calling of perpetual holiness. It stressed completeness. It stressed perfection. It stressed totality, right? Continuing to do this day and night, day and night, throughout this process of being set apart, inaugurated into this task. Continually before the Lord, people obeying the Lord commands to make atonement for themselves that they would be fit for the service of the people. Again, think about this. For seven days, the people saw this, saw them sacrificing over and over and doing these rituals and these commandments. And in the same way for us, beloved, this is a lifelong commitment. This is an eternal commitment. And it, requ- and it requires continual, perpetual obedience and service. Luke nine twenty three through 25 says this, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? As those who have been called into this priestly duty, this New Testament call, we too have to daily take up our cross, make sacrifices, sacrificing ourselves, our desires, our wants. First to glorify the Lord, to honor the Lord, right? And to serve others. So in this process, we saw declaration, a commitment to the Lord should be made public, Preparation, we first need to be washed, clothed with righteousness, set apart so that we are prepared for service. Hebrews says that anything that is not done in faith is worthless to the Lord. And so we must be made new so that when we act upon anything, it's done in faith and it is pleasing to the Lord. We also need to be consecrated by the Spirit so that we're divinely enabled to act upon God's commandments. We need to be sanctified, atoned for through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through His sacrifice on the cross. We need to be ordained, set apart as those who are ready to serve, sanctified, consecrated, and understand that once we're installed into this call, it is a lifelong commitment. So my question to you this morning is, have you received these benefits? 
Are you a royal priest? Are you in this priesthood? Because if you're not, you're not able to present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. Or as 1 Peter 1, 5 says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. If you have not gone through this, you are not acceptable to God. You are outside the fold and therefore will someday face judgment. And so my call to you is to repent, to call upon the name of Christ, to understand who He is so that the Lord can do these things in your life so that you can receive the spiritual benefits and be called a royal priest. All right. Thank you.